Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Good day to everybody out there. We have a podcast coming for you today. And our podcast is going to be on total knee arthroplasty, the rehabilitation of lateral versus midline approaches. And I think you're going to enjoy it. This is definitely an area, if you are in the rehabilitation field, you are seeing a lot of these patients. And if you're not seeing a lot of them, you're probably going to start to see way more of them over the next decade to two decades because total knee arthroplasty is one of the single biggest expected orthopedic surgeries to be being done over the course of the the next several decades. So um, this is a topic area I really enjoy a lot of myself and uh, enjoy talking about it, uh, researching it, and also treating it. So I'll give you a little information about me. My name is Paul Frizzell. I'm a clinician. I'm a physical therapist. I practice out of the study, sunny state of Florida and do a lot of work with orthopedic patients, have a big orthopedic caseload. And I've been seeing a, an interesting change. And uh, the interesting part for me is that I haven't taught a lot of courses kind of around the country and instructed a lot of courses around the country. I started talking to people because I was talking and doing a course with total knee replacement in it. And I was starting to hear from people, uh, clinicians out there that were seeing lateral approaches, which was pretty interesting to me because I hadn't really seen too many of them. And then lo and behold, in my own practice, I start seeing more of these lateral approaches coming. And it's really, really interesting. Uh, If you haven't seen them at all, it's definitely something to be a little bit more aware of. So, you know, what we're going to do today is that we're going to talk about midline versus lateral approaches. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk first about the surgical approaches themselves. So, and you know, granted, I'm, I'm, I'm just a physical therapist. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. So we're going to kind of stay a little bit loose uh, on talking about the surgeries themselves. I can only discuss those from, you know, how the research discusses them and, and some of the common pitfalls and problems that each different approach has, as well as some of the benefits of each different approach. And I'm going to talk about that specific anatomy that's involved in those approaches. And then after that, uh, we want to talk about some of the rehab challenges in total knee arthroplasty, especially talking about these different approaches and how maybe a lateral approach might be a little bit different in the rehab process versus a midline approach. And again, uh, you know, it's at least been my experience that I haven't seen a ton of lateral approaches in my practice, but 
It's interesting because I have seen a few of them and the outcomes are really interesting and having talked to therapists kind of around the country, I heard a lot of really, really good things uh, about lateral approaches. So I thought it'd be a great topic for us to talk about and kind of get you some of the research that's out there and then hopefully you'll get a chance to experience that in the clinical setting for yourself and, and get some more time with it. So. So why don't we start off, and again, we talked about the objectives as far as talking about the different uh, surgical approaches, and then the rehab challenges, and I talked a little bit about myself, I'll just give you a little bit more background in case you're interested. Uh, I'm really an orthopedic clinician, that's where a majority of my training has been, that's where a majority of my academic work has been as well. Uh, I'm primarily working in the outpatient clinic setting. But I have also worked for a couple of years in the acute rehab hospital setting. So I've seen patients kind of at all different levels of the rehab spectrum. Uh, I'm definitely a hands-on type of therapist. I use manual therapy when it's appropriate for patients at all different levels of the rehab spectrum. And I'm also a big, big time strength and conditioning nerd. Uh, you know, and I, I believe as evidence-based clinicians, we all really, really need to have a very good handle on how to prescribe exercise and the implementation of exercise in the rehab setting because you know as we look at evidence-based practice the evidence for exercise is fantastic so definitely for me it's something that's a, a big focal area uh, to treat patients appropriately so so why don't we get past all that stuff and let's get into talking about total knee arthroplasty and specifically we'll talk about the different approaches that are out there. And so I don't I don't know if y'all are like me or not and what I've seen clinically but it's always interesting how different uh, my joint replacement patients are when I see them in the clinic. And you know you kind of at least I've seen this across the board you know, I see one total knee and it comes out totally different than another one, right? So one knee is really stiff. One person gets range of motion really easy. Uh, one person has mm, some problems getting range of motion, but then it all comes at the end. One person's got really great quad contraction. So, you know, a lot of that could be due to the status of the patient prior to the surgery, but also there's a lot of it that can be due to the surgical approach that's chosen by the by the surgeon themselves. So, so looking at probably the one that we're gonna see the most frequently, it's gonna be the, called the medial parapatellar approach, right? And so the medial parapatellar approach is the most commonly used approach in total knee arthroplasty, right? And the reason for that is, is that this approach gives excellent exposure to the joint. And I, I don't know if you have not had the wonderful opportunity yet to go through and watch a knee replacement surgery, I highly suggest it because it will help you to understand why these individuals hurt so bad after one of these surgeries, right? It is, it's an incredible 
incredible bit of, uh, I think biologic construction is probably the nicest word that we call it. So uh, amazing what they can do to the human joint. And when you see a, 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 a medial parapetellar approach being done, it will become obvious to you why it's so well liked because you get really great exposure of the joint. Right, so fantastic exposure of the joint, so they got great visualization of it. Of course, like everything else, it does not come without potential drawbacks. So really, you know, in the big picture, when you look at total knee arthroplasty, it really has excellent long-term outcomes, but there are potential problems that go along with these different surgical approaches, and, and medial parapetellar is no exception. So when you look at the medial parapetellar approach, you can definitely have iatrogenic damage, right? And that type of damage can result in reduced ranges of motion. Uh, one of the things that is common with this approach is increased anterior knee pain. Um, persistence, you know, hypoesthesia where people might, the patient may tell you, boy, I just, I, I can't feel this part of my knee, right? That's your hypoesthesia. So they've lost some sensory or sensation. Uh, patellar maltracking is something that definitely goes along with this surgery or potentially, I shouldn't say goes along with it, but is potential with this approach. Uh, and also because of this specific approach, there's potential for damage to the arteries that feed the patella. So a potential negative outcome is patellar necrosis, right? So uh, again, you know, when you look at the strengths of this surgery, great view of the joint, but... Uh, the negative sides of it, they're there too. Again, the other, maybe one of the other things that, and I, I think we we'll probably have all experienced this, uh, because in that medial parapetellar approach, they, the direction that they go in, they end up violating the extensor mechanism of the knee. So it does cause problems with quad contraction. So, you know, for the good parts that this surgery offers, it does offer some potential downsides to it. So this is the reason why other approaches have been looked at or other approaches may be chosen. And so a second approach that is used is called the subvastus medialis approach. And this is also a midline approach, uh, but the incision itself is positioned a little bit more oblique and medially compared to the medial parapetellar approach. Um, your subvastus approach, it leaves the medial patellar vessels intact while also preserving the extensor mechanism. So in this subvastus approach, you may have a little bit better quality of quad contraction post-surgery, also a little bit less of potential for patellar necrosis post-surgery because of how it can spare those uh, patellar vascular structures. Also, your subvastus medialis approach has been shown to exhibit earlier straight leg raise capability and better knee flexion at an earlier point in the recovery. So definitely, you know, when you compare it to the medial parapetellar approach, there's definitely some advantages that it seems like this specific surgical approach would offer. But some of the problems that this surgical approach has is that the exposure is less. So it's, it's a more technically demanding surgery is how it's, as how it's labeled out in the literature. 
right? So, and you have less exposure. So less exposure to the joint means more potential risk. So again, you know, with any potential upside, there's potential downsides. And, you know, when you look at the literature and you look at the literature on surgeries and joint replacements, what you find is, is that I believe the average to start developing skill with a specific surgical approach is from 50 to 150 surgeries before you really start having a surgeon develop high levels of skill with an approach. So, you know, like everything else, the more that you practice at it, the better that you get at it. So these approaches, you know, they're not just jump right in and it's easy and no problem at all. People develop skill and surgeons develop skills with them. And so that could be a reason that why they may choose to stay with a specific approach and not try a different approach because they may have developed very good skill with that approach and have very good outcomes. Because again, as you look at the long-term outcomes in most of these surgeries, the long-term outcomes all are very good when you look at total, total knee arthroplasty. They all have improvements in quality of life, decreases in pain, improvements in function. And so all of these approaches have potential really good upsides for the patient. So using the tool that that surgeon may be best with may be why they choose to use primarily one approach versus a different approach. The mid-vastus approach is another midline approach that's out there. And now this is a modification to the subvastus approach. And in this approach, the vastus medialis is split in line with its muscle fibers proximally. So again, the mid-vastus and subvastus approach are both quadriceps sparing approaches, right? So these are uh, surgical approaches in total knee arthroplasty that you're supposed to have better quadricep recovery overall compared to the mid midline or the medial parapatellar approach, excuse me. So again, um, the, the interesting part both of these technically more difficult surgeries, again, and that's how the literature, uh, you know, stated both of these surgeries to compare them to the medial parapatellar approach. The other thing with these surgeries, they're often reserved for thinner patients was something that was noted. So again, you know, a, a lot of our patients that are coming in for total knee arthroplasty are individuals who have reduced activity levels in the first place. Um, they may be overweight or obese. So these approaches may not necessarily be appropriate, not only because of surgeon skill, but also because of intrinsic factors that the patient may present with prior to them opting for a, a knee arthroplasty. So again, you know, these are all, these three are midline approaches, definitely differences between the three in who's the best selection for them, what the technical demand on the surgeon is, and then what the surgeries are supposed to bring for benefits versus risk uh, to the patient as far in, in the recovery process. 
All right, so our lateral parapetellar approach, and, and again, this one for me has just been a really, really interesting, uh, both learning experience as a clinician starting to see these, as well as really kind of digging into the literature on lateral parapetellar approach. So your lateral parapetellar approach, it's still a midline incision in the knee joint, but it's positioned lateral to the tibial tubercle, right? So it, it goes on the lateral side of the knee versus the midline or medial side of the knee. This lateral approach, when you look at the literature, and again, literature really you know, clarifies that this surgery primarily has been used for patients with a valgus knee deformity. And the reason that it was chosen for valgus knee deformities is, is that when you come in from the lateral side, you spare those medial structures which may have been compromised in a valgus knee deformity. And it's interesting, kind of a lot of where I've read, at least on the research on the lateral approach, is, is that you see a lot of the sample groups involve patients with rheumatoid arthritis, right? Because a lot of times they have that, that valgus knee deformity. So, and you see really good outcomes with the lateral approach with patients with valgus knee deformities. So... But what's been interesting is to look at the literature, you're starting to see some literature noting that this surgery may be appropriate for people that don't necessarily have a severe valgus deformity. And the way a valgus deformity is, is defined, at least in the literature that I was looking at and what I was reading, was 10 degrees of knee valgus of the tibiofemoral joint. So, you know, 10 degrees is not necessarily an overwhelming amount. So, you know, you may have, that may include a wider range of people, but again, 10 degrees was which was noted in the literature to be a, 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 the determinant for a valgus knee deformity. So, so again, you know, lateral approach primarily used previously in severe valgus knee deformities they make the incision lateral to the patella and extends up into the quadriceps tendon but it also goes up into the anterior fibers of the iliotibial band so you know i mean we all know our anatomy and we all kind of have a good feel for what happens when you go through and put in a slice into an aponeurosis think about if you did it in the uh, the plantar fascia right it's going to create some possibly some stability changes in the joint that that's affected by so but in this case uh, when you're going through and you're violating those anterior fibers of the iliotibial band, it may create some issues going further up into the hip musculature. So uh, again, the difference in the surgical approach can create differences for the clinician in the rehab process. Also, you know, this is just uh, from my own experience with the lateral approach. Uh, the surgeons that I've seen that are using the lateral approach have a very different protocols compared to the ones that I've seen that are not using that approach. Um, the, most of the surgeons that I've seen with subvastus, vastus medialis approach, uh, uh, the medial parapetellar approach, excuse me, they kind of all have the same, you know, general, broad 
frame time frames for progression work on pain control protect the healing wound then gradually mobility slowly building mobility quad contraction strength patellar stability or patellar mobility and then stabilize and, and build up from there uh, the the surgeons that i've seen with the lateral approach definitely a little different and again i can only speak from my own clinical experience with that but the differences are, are, are unique, to, to say the very least, from what I've seen. So it would be interesting to see or hear from other areas of the country uh, if they're seeing the same differences. If you're seeing uh, uh, surgeons that are using the lateral approach, are their protocols for recovery that much different from other surgeons who are using the other approaches? So some of the advantages with that lateral approach, that it, it does... Uh, definitely is the chosen surgery for a patient with a valgus knee deformity because of how it spares those medial structures. Overall, the surgery has been shown to have a lower incidence of patellar maltracking, right, uh, uh, compared to the medial parapatellar approach. And then it also, let me come back to this one real quick. There we go. And it preserves the medial blood supply. Unfortunately, though, and, and like we talked about in this, you are still violating some of that extensor mechanism uh, of the quadricep, but you're going in more towards the vastus lateralis versus uh, the vastus medialis. So, you know, how does that affect the patellar stability? I, I think this is one of those things that I think probably over the next 10 years, I believe that we're going to start seeing more and more literature coming out examining this approach more and more um, because what's been interesting for me as a clinician not only have i heard it from the other clinicians that i've spoken with but i've seen it myself there seems to be a little quicker recovery and range of motion a little bit better quality of quad contraction with patients that have had this approach and several of the patients that I've had that have had this approach do not have what I would consider to be that visually classic valgus knee deformity right so so interesting uh, I think this may be something that we start seeing some more of as as really an alternative approach and I would be interested to start watching the literature as it's coming out, probably I would say in the course of the next decade, really, and seeing what that literature is telling us about comparing all of these different approaches with each other. Now, if, if you have any interest in really getting into some of the literature that's coming out on these different approaches, I, I have some really good or what I believe to be really good uh, uh, citations in uh, the uh, uh, show notes. So you can look, but there's a great one. Uh, it's the Lanting et al. study. It's called the Lateral Subvastus Approach, a Cadaveric Examination of Its Potential for Total Knee Arthroplasty. And that's a study from uh, 2020. So, you know, a lot of the literature, I Again, that's coming out that's looking at these different uh, uh, approaches you're gonna see some some more recent stuff coming out so I think at least from what I've seen as a clinician practicing over the past years 
I don't want to call it stale because, you know, you've seen kind of this advent of robotic surgeries and, and, you know, everybody's really big into this, but you haven't seen a lot of advancements in the surgical process itself as far as changing the approaches. You've seen some minimally invasive stuff, and I think there's some bits and pieces. And, and when I say you haven't seen changes, I think what that means is you haven't seen those changes being brought together into big enough sample size pieces of research to really make good quality statistical inferences regarding these different approaches. So I think over the next decade, you're going to start to get some more aggregated information about all of these different surgeries that we're seeing, whether it's the minimally invasive, whether it's the lateral approach, you're going to start to see more of this information be brought together. And then this information can be compiled and really brought together to bring us some more statistically meaningful information. Because right now, really what these comparison of these different approaches suffers from is just a, a paucity. I love that word. I've been dying to use that word. A paucity of information out there about how these approaches perform against each other, looking at all the different factors, both economic usage, uh, outcomes, uh, range of motion gains, recovery of function, uh, how it performs in different age groups. So I think, again, I think the next 10 years we kind of have one of these big jumps forward as all of this information that's being brought together and, and, and really compiled uh, from the past decade of information that we've been bringing together starts to be able to be brought together in a research form. And, and really, you know, when we look at the literature from uh, on joint replacements and long-term outcomes with joint replacements. When we're looking at research from 2020, 21, 22, we're really looking at joint replacements a lot of times that were done in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. It's a long time ago. I mean, think about how much your phone has changed since 2008, 2009, 2010. Right now, consider that same type of technological advances, but happening in the medical field. So after the over the past decade, you've just seen a lot of incredible changes, but that change takes so long to bring together into meaningful, high quality information that's peer reviewed and, and can be studied and, and, and validated for quality. And then brought together and then brought to the public so we can consume that information. So, you know, again, you know, looking at this information that we're seeing right now, it's great information. Realize that the next 10 years, I, I really believe we're going to see just a, a really explosive time period of new research on total knee arthroplasty and, and really bringing more information about the, the approaches that we're talking about today. And I think you're going to see that, especially with the lateral approach, you're going to start to see more information about this being used in non-valgus knee deformities. So I think that's what I see the direction going and, and, and you know, really what I see happening in the area that I'm practicing. Okay, 
So we kind of delved a little bit into these different surgical approaches and talked about the anatomy involved with them and you know what we're looking at that's different and from one thing to the next and, and now we want to really look at what's interesting at least to me because you know I'm a rehab clinician so what's interesting to me is how all of these different approaches can play out in the rehab setting and how I may need to adapt or change my strategy based on the approach that was done, patient characteristics prior to surgery, as well as what the research shows uh, about what are the best interventions to try to do with patients to get the best outcomes after total knee arthroplasty. So, you know, one of the areas that it's definitely been a hot button issue, at least as, as long as I can remember, um, and it seemed like it phased through a point of popularity, uh, was the idea of prehabilitation prior to joint replacement, right? I, 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 I seemed like, I, or I felt like, this was a thing that was happening, right? This made sense. We were going to do this with our patients to give them the leg up, especially our deconditioned patients. And, you know, there was some literature back in the day that had come out showing that patients were stronger, that were that were stronger pre-surgery, had better outcomes post-surgery, which it, it at least in my mind, seems to make logical sense. If I have better strength before a surgery, when I come out, I'm going to be working from a higher baseline than I was if I was lower baseline prior to the surgery. So, but the evidence on this has been really, really mixed, right? We haven't gotten a lot of really good evidence that's conclusively supported the idea of prehabilitation, especially in total knee arthroplasty. And um, you're really starting to see a lot more of the systematic reviews and meta-analysis coming out on this topic area. And there was one specifically that I pulled. I want to make sure I get the title of it right because it was a. Uh, uh, it, it was from. Here we go. Yeah, it, it's from uh, American Journal. Uh, uh, ooh, hold on, let me make sure I do this right. American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehab, and it's a published available ahead of print so kind of got my little hot little hands on this one because it's coming out in 2023 so it's coming out right now so and the title is prehabilitation for total knee or total hip arthroplasty a systematic review so you know in this this systematic review they really did a nice job i felt like of getting the best uh, uh best literature to include in the systematic review because uh, you know like one of my my mentors told me you know you put garbage into a systematic review you're going to get a garbage answer out so really in my mind at least, systematic reviews and meta-analysis are only as good as the quality of the research that they're examining to be included in that research paper. So this specific paper did a really nice job of including only high-quality research studies. They had some nice exclusion criteria, I felt like. And in this specific uh, a study, you know, they found that the evidence supporting prehabilitation for both total knee, specifically, which is we were talking about here, but also total hip is limited. 
But what they did find is that they found strength of evidence that prehabilitation prior to total knee arthroplasty, specifically total knee with this one, may lead to reduced lengths of stay and increased strength. Right? So for me, I, I, I like that. Right, I, I, the law, the and I don't know if you have had the opportunity to be in the hospital lately, but if you're well, the worst place for you to be is in the hospital, right? So anything that can get me to stay for a shorter period of time in the hospital, as far as me as the person, I'm I'm down with that. I am totally down with that. Increased strength. We all know that if you have better strength in the lower body, you have reduced fall risk. So increased lower body strength, reduced fall risk. Those two things do have a correlation to each other. And we know that patients that are taking pain medications or have had any lower extremity surgery, they're at increased risk for falls. So this is something that can mediate fall risk post-surgery. So again, you know, although they didn't necessarily find earth-shattering support for prehabilitation prior to total knee arthroplasty, they were able to find some evidence supporting those two things, reduce length of say and increase strength. But, you know, the other things that they looked at, there was comparable to uh, no prehabilitation. And the things that they found that were comparable were patient-reported outcome scores, performance-based outcome scores, or healthcare utilization outcomes. So some good things that, you know, uh, me as a clinician, I like some bad things, didn't necessarily find that across the board. I think some factors and and even the authors in the study, uh, you know, agreed with this. Some of the factors that are really limiting towards uh, the idea of uh, getting good good quality research across the board into these systematic reviews is really the lack of heterogeneous information coming in about how patients are managed after total knee, right? How are they rehabilitated? Are they put through high intensity? Are they done low intensity? Is it they're only at home? Are they in the hospital for two days and then they have home health for three weeks? So there's a lot of lack of standardization in what the meaning of rehabilitation is after total knee arthroplasty. So that can be something that can definitely affect the outcomes post-surgery. So, and that can be something that's going to affect the data that we're going to see. One of the other things that definitely as we look at both prehabilitation and and then discuss the idea of rehab programs and, you know, some of the lack of heterogeneity, I guess that's the best way to say that. Uh, similarity, let me put it like that. Similarity is easier for me to say, uh, is that the lack of similarity in, in post, uh, post-TKA rehab programming as well as prehabilitation programs really kind of interferes with uh, understanding how well these different rehab approaches can uh, uh, affect outcomes or not. So... And, you know, I do know a lot of, of therapists who are under the impression that there's specific rehab approaches that always work best. And, and you know, and one of the things that I see a lot of, and it, it does concern me sometimes, 
is the you know the high intensity model of rehab where you know uh, it's just about blast the person as much as they can possibly tolerate and that that's going to get somebody better in the least amount of visits and get the best outcomes and you, you know that is one of the areas that the current literature shows that you know, high intensity method for rehab, post-total knee arthroplasty, it doesn't necessarily result in more cost-effective outcomes or obtain better outcomes for the patient. So again, you know, when we look at this, the idea of being a clinician and not a technician, when we're involved in either prehabilitation or rehabilitation for patients with total knee arthroplasty, it's so key, right? A, a technician just goes through and applies everything the same across the board to everybody, right? So everybody gets this because that's what it says to do. A clinician takes into account the patient, their characteristics, their beliefs, the clinician's skill sets, and then assesses the patient for deficits and recognizes what they need to get for a functional or a return of function to the level that they desire. And then the, the clinician implements the tools that they have to solve those problems. So there's a big difference in being a clinician versus a technician. And I think if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you're a clinician, right? Because technicians don't really want to take the time to, to spend improving themselves because to them, it's something that you're just going to do the same thing with everybody anyway. So why would I bother with that? So, uh, you know, again, when we look at that research, high intensity methods, especially in post-total knee arthroplasty, they don't show superior outcomes uh, for the patient. They don't show improved cost effectiveness. So the idea is, is find the thing that works the best with your patient and then bring that to the table and help that patient get the best that they can get after that surgery. Some things that are really, really important, and this is something definitely when you start looking across the literature uh, that I think is it can be easy to overlook, uh, is the idea of in the rehabilitation process, making sure to include balance and proprioceptive training when we're talking about total knee arthroplasty. And so this... I think this is kind of an area where, for me, it's interesting. And I'll, I'll give you all a little bit of health background about me. I've got I've got two two nice, I I think they're nice, shiny hip replacements, right? So one of the things that was so interesting for me after my hip replacements was when I started to try to return to activities that were a little bit quicker. Right where I had to move, like I wanted something to happen, uh, like hitting a tennis ball, or boy, let me tell you what, it was. I didn't know where my lower body was. I didn't know where my leg was going. My brain was telling my leg where to go. I knew what the pattern of movement that was necessary to accomplish the task to hit a tennis ball, right? But it wouldn't go through. It didn't compute. So it was so interesting for me as a person 
and, and really as a patient, but then also as a clinician at the same time, to feel that loss of proprioception and balance that comes along with a joint replacement in action. And I think this is where for us as clinicians, you know, I, I know a lot of my total knee uh, patients, they're older, right? They're, they're, they're definitely not all spring chickens. I don't have the 40 and 50 year olds as a majority of who I see with total knee arthroplasty. Majority of what I see is early 60s, mid 60s, 70s, even up into the 80s sometimes, right? Those are the people that I see uh, that, that most of the time have total knee arthroplasty. And a lot of times these people have significantly reduced activity levels well before the time that they get this surgery. So it becomes really easy for me, especially to go through and go, okay, I got to work on range of motion, quad contraction, patellar mobility, protect the healing wound, control pain, control swelling, and then teach them how to walk, teach them how to walk with an assistive device, get them stronger. Okay. You're all done. Because, uh, you know, they may not, they may not even be able to identify what they're going to go back to doing, but think about how much balance and proprioception it takes to weight shift down and pull a dish up off of the bottom shelf of the dishwasher. Think about how much motor control it takes to take a step backwards in the bathroom, reach back, grab a hold of a towel off the towel rack, and then step back forward and start shaving again. These are all the little things that, you know, you just don't necessarily consider that go on on a day-to-day basis that really require high levels of balance and high levels of proprioception. And so these individuals go through and get these surgeries and we're encouraging them to go back to function. Hey, you got a brand new knee, your knee pain's all gone. Let's get out there. Let's do stuff. But they don't have the proprioception or the balance or stability required to move into those higher levels of activity. So, you know, I'll give you some things that I like doing uh, for, for really for, for developing proprioception and balance in these patients. And, you know, maybe it's a little outside the box. Maybe it's not. Um, because, again, I've, I found that for me as a clinician, it's really easy to just kind of get focused in on those, you know, protect the healing wound, the, uh, recover knee range of motion, keep the swelling down, all those really boring boring, boring, terrifyingly boring things that can make knee rehab kind of like a factory, a factory process when we're talking about total knees. So, you know, some of the motor control things I like doing, um, I, I like that, you know, of course your gait exercises are a lot of fun. You got your walking with head turns, right? Turn your head right, turn your head left um, five times while you're trying to walk at the same pace with reciprocal arm swing. Don't lose that reciprocal arm swing. Love those. Uh, looking up and down, that's fantastic. I can have them looking in diagonals, down and right, up and left. Right, and if you have anybody with any kind of vestibular stuff going on at the same time, oh boy, you're going to have just a wonderful, wonderful party when you start adding that stuff in. So you may have some dizziness with that, but they're fantastic, fantastic motor control exercises and very relevant to day-to-day function. Uh, walking with eyes closed, uh, definitely, of course, and I would not expect anything less because you're listening to a podcast like this, but you're going to have the gate belt on when you do this. I always pick 20 steps because 
because 20 steps is just enough for that individual to start weaving if they're going to weave, but not so much so that I lose control of them. And I ask them, I got a nice several long straightaways in the, the clinic that I work in. So I'll get on a nice long straightaway with walls on each side. I get my hand on the gate belt and I'll say, okay, let's take 20 steps forward with your eyes closed. And fantastic, fantastic way to work on motor control, balance, stability, proprioception, right? So uh, those are some of the walking and then some of the gait exercises that I like doing. Um, and again, those are those are high level motor control, balance, and, and neuromuscular control exercises for a majority of the patients that we're going to see. Right? And in the early phases, I'll be 100% honest with you, I was doing those because they were high level even for me and I, you know I'm I'm not necessarily spring chicken but I'm not up into that 60 and above category yet I got a couple more years so so but those exercises were challenging for me so even though you may have a younger patient those are great to start out with with your older patients those are going to be probably pretty high level uh, interventions to be able to include some other things, you know, of course, standing on the foam pads is, is always a lot of fun. It's entertaining. Patients love it. Uh, gets us a nice, uh, really static way to work on balance. Um, ball throw and catching. Love ball throw and catching primarily because it involves tracking, it involves weight shifting. The thing about it is with a ball throw and catch, you definitely are going to want to have the gate belt on the patient. Some of them, they couldn't hit the trampoline with the ball if you saved their life, or they couldn't catch the ball coming back at them. So a lot of my patients, I can't use that medicine ball on the trampoline that we might use with our young athletes. So I'll use Nerf balls thrown against the wall. Uh, that's an easy one. A tennis ball, right? Something that's a little bit more amenable if that patient was to miss the ball and happen to get hit in the coconut by it, that they would not be concussed. So so Nerf balls, tennis balls, uh, fantastic ways to involve weight shifting, balance, motor control, uh, eye movement. So nice way to get things in there. Uh, darts. So obviously we are not going to use a dart with a point because I'm sure that that would violate somebody's company policy about throwing sharp objects, but you can use the darts that are foam with Velcro, right? And then think about it with the, with dart throwing darts, you've got that weight shift forward and back. You've got balance. You're in a tandem stance position. It involves targeting and it involves moving up the upper extremity. So you've got some perturbation. So you just use those nice foam darts that have Velcro at the end of them, right? The safety darts, whatever you want to call them. So don't, 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 don't go out and buy a super sharp dart set and then give that to your patient with visual limitations and a total knee replacement and say, throw it at the wall bad idea use the darts with the velcro and the foam darts on the end that's going to be a lot safer for everybody and you get that same weight shift motion and that same kind of balance that's necessary so definitely definitely when you look at the literature and look at the evidence motor control exercises balance and proprioception absolutely absolutely a key for our our patients post-total knee arthroplasty 
when we look at, you know, and we talked specifically about these different approaches and the anatomy involved in the different approaches, we know with that medial parapetellar approach, they're going to have that big slice right down the middle. And we know with that one, we've got these problems with potential for reduced range of motion. So we know with that one, we're going to really focus a lot on mobility. So with those ones, I have a tendency to dose really, really high and frequent on active assisted ranges of motion exercises. I don't back off for those at all. I really stay a higher amount of those, especially early in that process. Uh, we know with patellar maltracking, with that one, we're going to work a lot on quad contraction. So tons and tons of quad sets. I'll, I'll request patients doing quad sets way, way further out uh, than normal because I just have a tendency to see them have really poor quad contraction with this approach. So um, so I'll do a lot, a lot of quad contraction. Your subvastus medialis approach. It's a little bit more quadriceps sparing, so you may notice that they have better quad contraction. You may be able to go into a little heavier exercises a little earlier. These are also the ones that have that earlier straight leg raise capacity. So you may be able to go into higher levels, either higher volume or higher load with these, you know, little bit more quad dependent exercises. And the faster that you can build strength back up, the better the outcomes are going to be. So knowing that it's a subvastus approach, I may try to move into my straight leg raises and loaded long arc quads a little bit earlier. Um, so definitely, you know, your lateral parapetellar approach, again, you know, this lateral approach, because of what's going on with the intrusion on the anterior fibers of the iliotibial band, some interesting stuff, you know, I've heard some, some just, you know, anecdotal things about some problems with lateral tracking of the patella, uh, you know, so just... It's, it's interesting to me to hear what's out there, but not necessarily see it in the literature. Also, again, like when I, when I look at this approach and I've looked at the surgeon's protocols, because the surgeons that I've had that have sent lateral approaches over, they have very specific protocols. Right, and so a, a couple of them wanted really a lot of time on the treadmill and, and high speeds on the treadmill. And the speeds that they were giving, I would question whether these patients could walk at that speed on the treadmill prior to that surgery, let alone after. So, you know, I, 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 I do have a tendency to kind of be cautious with some of the things that I've seen with some of the lateral approaches, but very, very interesting to see. And again, because what I've experienced anecdotally with my patients that have had lateral approaches and that speed of recovery of quad contraction seems like we can work into strengthening work a lot earlier, but I also have noticed that hip strength seems to be a much bigger deficit. And again, I don't know if that has anything to do with the intrusion on that uh, lateral component of the iliotibial band. Uh, so that may have something to do with it, but I end up doing a lot of hip abductor work. So AB ductor with that lateral approach population. So uh, again, just something anecdotal that I've seen out there and also anecdotal of what I've seen of uh, the clinician's specific requests for post-surgical uh, rehab programming with those lateral approaches. So, you know, the other thing, and I talked about, you know, I've got these kind of populations of, of, of patients 
and these different age groups, right? I don't necessarily see a ton of people in that, that nice young category, the 40 to 55 category, but most of what I'm seeing is usually 60 and up. And so there's another sector of patients that it's, it's interesting. I am starting to see more of these patients, and these are the patients that are, are older, old patients, right? These are patients over 75 years old. And so the patients that are over 75 years old, definitely a different set of parameters as far as their physical health and their ability to recover from the surgical interventions itself, as long as, as well as the medications that are used in the surgery. So, you know, there, and there's some factors that have been identified, at least in the literature, on what short-term functional gains in patients who are over 75 years old, at least in the acute phases of total knee arthritis. Plasty. And so these factors indicate better outcomes, right, if they have that before surgery. So, you know, three factors that are, are, are that affect the short term outcomes in your older patients, and again, older patients, at least in this literature, was over 75 years old, is their pre surgical functional level. Well, that, 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 that goes to make sense. That kind of goes to our idea of the need for prehabilitation, right? So absolutely, their pre-surgical functional level is one thing that's a big factor in their short-term functional gains in these older, older, old patients. Cognitive status. Again, that one goes really makes a lot of sense. Uh, patients with lower levels of cognition are going to have greater difficulty or be unable to maintain motor control strategies or to learn new motor control strategies post-surgery. They're going to have a lot more problems with gait training. They're going to have a lot more problems with exercise. So cognitive status pre-surgery is going to affect their short-term functional gains post-surgery. And then balance ability. Did they have good balance prior to surgery, then that's going to help them post-surgery. Was their balance poor prior to surgery? That's going to affect them in their short-term functional outcomes post-surgery. So you really, you know, when you look at it, these older, old patients, again, and this is just in my humble opinion, I believe that a couple of things are going to affect how much you're going to see of this. One, uh, the area that you're practicing in. So one of the things that I noticed is uh, when I was practicing, I used to practice in Virginia, I'd actually see a lot more of these older, old patients getting knee arthroplasties. And they seemed to be in better health, a little more active. Uh, he had different lifestyles and, and different socioeconomic statuses. Uh, when I what I've seen practicing down here in Florida, I don't necessarily see as much of that. Even though where I'm at in Florida, there's way, 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 way more geriatric population in this area of Florida than there was in the Virginia area. So that could be, at least for me, indicative of not seeing patients being referred to the clinic that I'm at because they may be getting kept by the doctors that are there. Or it may not be, it may be that I'm just not seeing that population having that surgery done as much in the area that I'm in. So, so it could definitely be several reasons why you may or not see that, may or may not see that. But based on the population studies that are out there and the data that's out there, we're going to see 
patients maintaining their activity levels until older ages. And we're going to see those patients become better candidates for joint replacement to maintain activity levels. And the biggest one of the joint replacement surgeries that, out, that is out there is knee replacement. So, so it should go to reason that we're going to see more and more of these patients as we move into the next decade and two decades. All right. In all types of uh, total knee arthroplasty, we know that the muscles above and below the joint are going to be affected. And those muscles are not only affected uh, due to the surgery, but they're also been affected by that degenerative osteoarthritis process that's been happening at the knee. So for me, one of the things that I really, I, I'll spend a lot of time on with patients after any knee surgery at all. So the same thing goes for my ACL, same thing goes for uh, patellar fractures, the same thing goes for my knee replacements, lots and lots of calf work. And I think with knee replacements and, and knee arthroplasty, one of the things about lower leg work, gastroxoleus, is, is that again, the population of people that we're seeing these surgeries in, generally deconditioned, generally decreased activity level. Usually what goes along with that is decreased gait speed. And the single, one of the single biggest proponents of gait speed is good plantar flexion strength. And so although working on retaining or recovering quad contraction, hip extension strength is exceptionally important for walking speed, plantar flexion strength is a huge, huge determinant on walking speed. And so that calf work is something that's exceptionally important. Also, plantar flexion strength is correlated to balance, right? So the weaker your plantar flexors are, the poorer your balance is. Weaker your plantar flexors are, slower your gait speed is. Also, the more forces get transmitted into the knee joint because if your plantar flexors don't do a good job at attenuating the ground forces, those forces are still transmitted, but they're going to go up through the other structures in the leg. So a, a lot of calf work. Um, I, I am lucky. I do work in a facility that does have an alter G, um, and we also have a pool. So, you know, the, the alter G can be a little tougher in the earlier phases to get patients into just because, you know, like any other body weight reduced device, um, they can be a little challenging to get people into. So usually when I'll start using the alter G is in the later phases of the rehab process. And I like having people in there doing single leg heel raises so I can reduce their body weight and I can have them do their single leg heel raises right in the alter G, which is fantastic. I can have them walking, doing hill stuff in there, single leg balance. So I'll do a lot of lower leg work in the alter G when patients don't have the tolerance or ability to do full gravity um, calf raises, especially single leg. The other place is that once they've been cleared by the doctor, we have them get into the pool and you can do a lot of great calf work in the pool, single leg heel raises at different depths. Uh, and you know, that's the other nice part about Florida is there's a, a pool pretty much around every corner. So if they don't want to come to the pool at the clinic, uh, I recommend that they use their pool at home. 
but calf work is a significant, significant component of a good rehab program with total knee arthroplasty in any approach. And then one of the other things that I, and I think this can get lost, especially because the requirements of objectively quantifying your treatment and that everything that you're doing identifies medical skill I think this is where cardiovascular exercise a lot of times can get lost in integrating this into a rehabilitation program because a lot of times what happens is that I think patients will get put on a cardiovascular exercise, whether it's the treadmill, whether it's recumbent bike, new step, and they'll get put on there and it's almost like a punishment. All right, go over to the new step and do 15 minutes. They're never measured for work output. They're never measured for O2 sats. They're never asked a perceived exertion. All it's done is they're put over there. So when they go over there, you have no way of objectively quantifying why this is a medically necessary treatment. So with cardiovascular exercise, implementing it, but then objectively quantifying it, so important for your post-joint replacement, but especially knee replacement patients, right? So many different ways that you can quantify and objectively document cardiovascular exercise to validate its use in a post-surgical total knee arthroplasty patient. You want to work on cardiovascular endurance for stair climbing. You want to work on walking speed for the ability to, again, climb stairs. Or uh, you want to see their gait speed increase on the treadmill and then transition that to walking on level surfaces. Uh, you want to use a rate of perceived exertion, that nice, easy Borg scale, which is a really nice way to quantify workload output. You can use the talk test. Talk test is just a nice, easy way. And the patient thinks you're a warm, fuzzy therapist because you're over there talking to them. But really, as you're talking to somebody, if they can't talk to you in a full sentence then you know that they're working too hard. If they can yell at you or if they can complain a lot, then they're not working hard enough. That's the talk test. So anytime that I have a conversation with a patient as we're doing any low to moderate level aerobic exercise, they're just passing the talk test, right? They think it's me being a warm, fuzzy therapist, but no, no, I am getting data in at every single second that I can, and then I'm going to document that. And I'm going to make sure that I include that because that shows medical skill and that that also shows the ability to progress that and then have that carry over to improving that patient's ability to perform activities daily living that require endurance, including carrying groceries in the car, standing activities like doing dishes, uh, putting away laundry, right? All of these functional activities that require endurance are addressed by what you're doing in the clinic. So again, that's just kind of one of those nice, easy areas that it, it, it can get underappreciated and underutilized because many times we can think of the documentation requirements for it as being onerous, but they really help validate why we're doing it and they're not that difficult to do. Talk test, very easy way, uh, rate of perceived exertion or your Borg scale, and then O2 sats, fantastic, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. So, and with that, we are officially at our full hour time. 
love talking on this topic area. It is really a fantastic opportunity for me to dig into the literature and to talk with everybody about it a little bit. I really appreciate everybody's time that you're spending with me. I hope you enjoyed the content of the course. We got some great uh, uh, sources in here. If you'd like to take a look at them, look up. Uh, I, I think you're going to see more and more literature over the next decade in this topic area. So I think you're going to be out on the forefront by looking at it now and wrapping your head around it now so thanks again everybody and have a great time wherever you're at thank you for listening to the pt and ot connection podcast by summit professional education to view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course please visit summit-education.com or Click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.